This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress. The English Digital Online Sales have changed the landscape of mixed Australian thoroughbred sales forever. Now, rather than wait for a mixed sale through the ring, owners, breeders and vendors can offer their product within a matter of days thanks to the twice-monthly English Digital Online Auctions. English now presents an online auction in the middle of each month and another at the end. Since going twice monthly, the auction has averaged around 150 lots per sale and has exceeded a million dollars per sale with a clearance rate of almost 80%. To enter a horse or register a bid, visit englishdigital.com and follow the prompts or call 9399 Victorian Racing Media Association's post-Melbourne Cup luncheon was held on Monday the 18th of November. As always, the highlight of the day was the presentation of the Burt Wolf Award to the media identity judged the most outstanding contributor to the Spring Racing Carnival. It came as no surprise when this year's award went to race caller Matthew Hill, whose brilliant work was widely acclaimed right through the carnival. This is the young bloke who burst onto the broadcasting scene when he won a Sky Channel scholarship in the year 2000. He immediately moved to Sydney and quickly established himself as an outstanding caller of all three codes and a consummate professional in the hosting studio. The ultimate acknowledgement of his talents came in 2009 when he became Sky Racing's number one Sydney caller on the retirement of Ian Craig. Over the next five and a half years, he covered Sydney racing with great flair, making a million friends along the way. Matt's ability to call a wide range of sports was well documented, but it came as a surprise nonetheless when he announced his resignation from the Sky Racing team to call AFL for ABC Grandstand and to work for ABC News Radio. Matt was happily settled into his new life when something happened destined to change the course of his life. He just happened to hear a news broadcast highlighting the impending retirement of Melbourne's legendary race caller, Greg Miles. Matt Hill has just completed his third Victorian Spring Carnival to great acclaim at home and overseas. And I'd like to add my congratulations by way of this podcast. Matty Hill, thanks for your time. Oh, thank you very much, uh, Tappy. It's uh, an honour to be uh, on this podcast. And you mentioned the Sky Channel Scholarship. You were very humble because uh, that was the John Tapp Scholarship and uh, what a great way to start uh, a career named uh, after a doyen like yourself. So thank you very much. Matt, I happened to be one of the judging panel when you were selected as the winner of that scholarship Proving once again what a good judge I am. <laughs> well, exactly. Uh, oh, there was some stiff opposition, though, uh, Tappy, and a, a couple of uh, hardcore trotting people as well. So uh, I thought, mm. oh, maybe that would be a disadvantage for me. But uh, I do remember that interview. It was, uh, can you believe it, 20 years ago. Don't it's it's unbelievable, me. isn't it? When correct weight flashed onto the semaphore <laughs> after the final race on the final day of the carnival, a massive weight must have come off your shoulders. 
Very true. Yeah, 37 races uh, for the week. And I think it's when I call the last horse over the line, Tappy, is uh, when I, I can have a bit of a, a breather. The last day is quite tiring, um, but you love it. You know, it, 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 the racing is fantastic. Um, and as I mentioned, 37 races. It all starts uh, with the, uh, the Lynn Lithgow Stakes um, that was won by Kemmel Passer this year. And go went went all the way through to Helvorsen, winning the last uh, race, the Grand Handicap. So, it's a bit of a, a wave of emotions. Derby Day is such a great day, and you really do work hard on Derby Day because every race is really important. Um, they're all group races, and then of course the build up to Melbourne Cup Day. And I, I don't really have five seconds to scratch myself in the four days leading up with preparation, and there's some functions and radio interviews, and, and, and just the preparation is so key to it that, um, you know, you just try and get a good night's sleep the night before, and the build-up is is immense towards uh, the Melbourne Cup, and then um, you've called, what have you done, 19 races by then, and then there's still mm-hmm. two big race meetings to go, so it is a massive week, but uh, the carnival is such a long haul, two or three months, but the narrative of it is always exciting and intriguing, and that you wouldn't want to be anywhere else. You know, it's easy for people to say you should just treat both cups and the Cox Plate as any Mm. other race, but they're not just any other race. They are iconic events, and more people obviously are listening to them. There's no doubt about that, and I get really uh, amazed at some of the emails I get uh, after races like the Cox Plate and the Melbourne Cup, and they're from colleagues or friends say from England or the United States and um, it's not just Australia that now stops for the Melbourne Cup in particular the British are very aware of it uh, the Irish adore it uh, because they've always got representation and uh, and now even the Americans are taking notice so um, it is a race that uh, does uh, stretch beyond Australia but it is also the race that uh, the local mechanic or the man that works in the news agency or um, you know that the local gardener etc the, the local hairdresser they'll have a bet in the Melbourne Cup so it is quite a unique position and it's, it's a privilege really to think that you could grab any Australian and say, did you listen to me call the Melbourne Cup? It's quite a surreal experience. Um, And it's very Australian. I mean, we're a very young country. We don't have many traditions, but the Melbourne Cup is one of them. And I think the VRC are acutely aware that uh, they have to uh, keep that tradition going. And I've got to say, I'm really relaxed about the Melbourne Cup, but about half an hour before I get very wound up, uh, this year, Amanda Elliott held the cup in the in the air, and um, they sang the national anthem, and uh, it was a very Australian theme before this year's cup. And uh, I had the the knots in the stomach, that's for sure. And I think the biggest key is keeping calm. That's really the tough part. And uh, then you've got you know 24 runners around a very big racetrack like Flemington, uh, which is no easy task. So um, it's always a bit of a relief when it's over. You've got another problem now at Flemington that uh, viewers and listeners are probably not aware of. That huge infield hospitality marquee obstructs your view for quite some distance as the horses go out of the straight in the Cup and the Derby and the mm-hmm. Oaks. How did you handle that monitor? have to go with the monitor, and I must say the monitors we have at Flemington uh, with the uh, free-to-wear vision uh, is very good. Uh, we can... Uh, we can have a look at the helicopter shots or the close-up shots, but when you're wrestling those with the binoculars, uh, sometimes you can uh, you can lose where the field is actually positioned. 
But the biggest issue with the marquee is that it, it affects your rhythm. You know, you, you go from first to last. And the thing is, you have to be back on the leader by the time they disappear. Mm. And uh, we have a set camera that's up very high in the grandstand. And the cameraman is ordered to film the first nine horses in the race. So the race caller can kick off with the first horse and get through the field before they reappear. Mm. So you're always aware of that. You know when they're running past the stands with a lap to go that at some point you have to readjust yourself because the horses are going to disappear. So, mm. um, yeah, it's it's just a part of what we do at Flemington Cup Week now and, and it is a key for the Derby and, and the Oaks as well because at the stage where they're disappearing – is the time when they're getting into some sort of order at about the 2,000 metre mark. So um, it's a great spectacle cup week. There's the mark, the marquees make it. There's uh, there's so much colour around Flemington, but uh, it's probably a little bit of colour that the race caller doesn't need. Mm. Well, it's a distraction, and mm. a distraction is the last thing you need when you're calling a Melbourne Cup. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I've always said that someone could be hitting me over the back of the head uh, with a baseball bat during the Melbourne Cup and I wouldn't notice. You, you, mm-hmm. Race calling, as you know, Tappy, is such a concentration game and I think the Melbourne Cup, you, you get into some sort of a trance, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you say, it, it is a little bit of a distraction that uh, can take your concentration away. You must look back on your career so far with a degree of disbelief. In 2009, you replaced Ian Craig as Sky's number one caller in the great racing city of Sydney. Suddenly, you resign to become an AFL caller and an ABC News reporter in Melbourne. Now, Matt, was it the appeal of a new challenge? Was it an overwhelming love of AFL? Or were there other factors? Well, I've always been a big believer if you uh, are going to resign or leave somewhere, you have to have more than one reason. And uh, I loved what I did in Sydney. I was at Sky for for 15 years and and learnt uh, so much. And without Sky Channel and the the John Tapp Scholarship, uh, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you about all of these things today. Um, And I loved the fact that uh, I learned a lot of things in television production and reporting and and commentary. Um, And I'm I'm also a big believer, Tappy, if you can call a horse race, you can call anything. Mm. Um, And I'd had the experiences of going to Olympic Games and and, and calling some football games in Sydney. And uh, I I love the idea of stretching myself. I think um, uh, my... Great belief is that you have to try and make the best of yourself. And uh, being a Melbourne boy, um, AFL was uh, what I was brought up with. Uh, I either went to the the local footy ground with my grandma to watch the the, the Footscray Bulldogs play, or I'd go to Flemington and and sit in the grandstand with Granddad. So um, they were, you know, two conflicting loves in a way because I think you probably can't be one without the other. I can't really be an AFL caller and and be a race caller at the same time. So something had to give. And I loved what I did in Sydney. I cherished those five golden slippers um, that I called. I think the golden slipper was one of the most hair-raising experiences a race caller could have and called some, you know, really great moments like Black Caviar and Haylist fighting out the TJ and Black Caviar's last run, etc. So uh, I had a good run, but I just felt I wasn't really um, developing as a broadcaster um, and I, I wanted to challenge myself and uh, going into the newsroom at the ABC was a completely different uh, perspective again and also um, calling the football was a, such a challenge such a high profile sport obviously and 
Um, I, I learned a lot over over a couple of years, and uh, you know, the, the 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 scary thing is that. Um, uh, at the time when I left the ABC, I wasn't calling football. If I was calling AFL uh, there, if I was a shorter spot there, it would have been a very interesting decision uh, when Greg Miles retired. But uh, um, because I was in the newsroom and I was a casual at the ABC, so I was, I was almost like a trotter four back on the fence just waiting for an opportunity. <laughs> and uh, when Greg retired, it was a bit of a no-brainer. And um, a lot of people have said, why did you, you leave the dream job in Sydney? In many ways, it was, Tappy, but it's, it's amazing the amount of people that have actually – I had a bookmaker come up to me the other day and said uh, he'd never heard of me before until I, I came to Melbourne. So it just proves that sometimes Melbourne and Sydney, we might be uh, different cities, but it, sometimes it feels like different countries. Mm. There was another poignant moment – uh, at the ABC one day, you had <laughs> just finished an interview with a very high-profile female footballer and uh, you got a call or maybe a personal mm. visit, I forget which, from one of your bosses who made a comment that made you stop and think. Well, that's right. I was told that uh, when I described uh, Daisy Pierce as a talented young lady that I should have referred to her as a talented young woman. Uh, which is interesting, uh, and I'm, I'm fully aware of uh, the fact that the language uh, is evolving, and um, I just, I just couldn't believe that uh, um, we were un such, uh, under such uh, precautions uh, like that. And uh, so, I, 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 I don't know in the end if the ABC is a place that uh, I wanted to stay. Um, mm. It was, and it was also uh, the other reason is that uh, I came from Sky Channel, as you know, Tabby, which was such a close knit organisation. Um, everyone knew everybody; it was like a family. And then to go to the ABC, where uh, it was a bit of a cold existence, really. Um, you walk into the office and. Uh, there's so many people that work there. You just don't know what they do, and they don't know you. And um, that's the that's how big the ABC is. It's a and it is the public broadcaster. It's a massive, massive organisation. So um, I think the ABC it, they they call it our ABC. And I think for a broadcaster, there's been plenty of broadcasters over the years that have probably had three or four cracks at working at the ABC. It's an open door there. Um, and who knows? Uh, I'll probably end up doing something for them again one day. But um, yeah, it was. It was an interesting experience, that one, and um, they were the, very much the first to kick off women's football and, and give it all of the uh, the broadcasting that it deserved, and uh, I, I can predict that uh, in 10 years' time, women's AFL will be right up there with men's AFL. I have absolutely no doubt about that. I mentioned in the introduction that you heard of Greg's upcoming retirement in a news bulletin. Yes. And you also assure me that you didn't have an inkling about his forthcoming retirement? No, that's an absolute fact. Uh, in fact, I remember uh, being at Flemington on Melbourne Cup Day, with, uh, which ultimately turned out to be Greg's last one, and uh, walked into the box and said, good luck, and um, I had no clue that uh, his retirement was going to be announced. Uh, I think it was the Monday. No, in fact, I tell you when it was. It was the Monday after the Ballarat Cup. Um, he called the Ballarat Cup uh, on the Saturday and then the, the following Monday he announced it. I had no clue. I was about to get on a plane uh, to go to the Japan Cup and uh, heard it. And I actually left uh, for Japan and I'm, I'm 
I was on Twitter at the time. Uh, I'm not on Twitter now. Uh, it was quite fledgling back then. Uh, because of my work at News Radio, Twitter was obviously very important because uh, you, you have to follow all of the news stories around the world. And uh, there was this almost robust conversation uh, on Twitter about who should get Greg's job. And it, uh, it stressed me out, to be honest. And I flew off to Japan thinking, do I really want to put myself on the chopping block again, uh, knowing full well that I'd be, uh, you know, calling races like the Cox Plate and the Melbourne Cup if I, I was to get the job. Um, so after a couple of weeks on uh, thinking about it, uh, I applied and uh, and the rest is history. But, um, yeah, it certainly was a, a, a big decision to, uh, to pursue it. Um, and I think... Uh, in the end, word got round that I was actually uh, going to apply and uh, uh, the odds uh, that one of the uh, betting organisations placed, I think I was 33 to 1 initially, um, and I, I think I plummeted. It was, uh, it was a red-hot go. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matt, obviously there were several tenderers for the job and then there came the normal process of interviews with the executives of Racing Victoria uh, you got a, a ray of hope, of course, when you were called back to a second interview. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Yes, uh, um, I was uh, in the reception area and uh, a couple of uh, the people that I knew from Racing Vic uh, gave me a few uh, high fives and said, uh, you know, we, we think you're the one. And uh, so that was uh, gave me a bit of confidence when I uh, walked into the, into the room. But uh, um, I think eventually... Um, it was it was it was an it was an interesting time of my career because uh, if I wasn't to get the job, um, who knows what I'd be doing today talking to you uh, now? But uh, it has opened up a lot of doors. Uh, the Melbourne Cup in itself uh, has opened up plenty of doors uh, with such networks like Channel Seven and uh, and also just um, uh, the people that I've met along the way in the last three years that uh, are aware of me now that wouldn't have been aware of me five years ago. So, mm. um, you know, they say that the Melbourne Cup changes lives for jockeys and trainers, but uh, in a small way, it changes the, the life of the race caller as well. You'd already planned a holiday and a trip to the UK for the famed Cheltenham mm. Festival of Jumps Racing. Now, you'd heard nothing from Racing Victoria, so you flew out of the country. And I think mm. you were actually at the Cheltenham Festival when yep. you got a phone call. That's right. It was uh, it was actually two in the morning. I'd just woken up in the middle. In fact, Cheltenham's uh, quite a rowdy town uh, during the Cheltenham Festival. Uh, every pub is occupied and every hotel is occupied. And I happened to be staying in the front room of a little hotel, a, a great little hotel about uh, 20 metres down the track from a pub. And do you think I could get some sleep at two in the morning? And uh, <laughs> so I just literally, as you do with your mobile phones nowadays, had a, a check of the emails and, and there it was uh, from the, the Human Resources Department of uh, uh, of Racing Victoria. And uh, the first person I rang was my mum and said, well, you better get your outfit ready for the Melbourne Cup uh, because uh, I'll be calling it this year. So, mm, What a wonderful um, moment. Yeah, so that was really lovely. And uh, then I toddled off to the Cheltenham Festival. I think it was the Thursday of the Cheltenham Festival, quite uh, happy with, with life. But uh, um, that feels like quite a while ago now, and it's actually surreal to think that uh, I've actually knocked over three Melbourne Cups as I talk to you now. <laughs> well, as your mum, Sue, listens to this podcast, she's probably <laughs> wondering when she's going to get a rap. Uh, <laughs> Sue, that'll come later in the interview, I promise. Yeah, 
yeah. And Matt, we See, better pause for a break uh, on the course. podcast. We'll come Gotta back. Pay the bills, Tappy. Yep. <laughs> we'll, <laughs> we'll come back after this and talk about your early education at a certain school at North Altona in Melbourne. Back shortly. The Illawarra Turf Club turned on a day to remember at Kembla Grange on November the 23rd to bring down the curtain on a remarkable Everest carnival. Mr Seawolf's win in the feature gave jockey James MacDonald a unique double, the hunter and the gong in the inaugural year of the two new races. There'll be a few more highlights before year's end. Thursday, December 12th, we'll see the running of the Wyong Magic Millions two-year-old classic and the Magic Millions three- and four-year-old stakes. To Randwick on Saturday the 14th of December for the running of the time-honoured Group 2 Villiers and the half-million-dollar Inglis Nursery with the Group 3 Summer Cup scheduled for Boxing Day. Keep an eye out for one of the popular night meetings at Canterbury Park, a perfect venue for a Christmas party. The show rolls on in New South Wales racing as an unforgettable 2019 comes to a close. My special guest is race-calling ace Matthew Hill, who has just concluded his third Melbourne Cup carnival. A large part of your education was gained at St Paul's College at North Altona. How do you rate yourself as a scholar looking back on those days? <laughs> uh, I wasn't bad. Uh, I think later in my schooling, I got very distracted by the form guide. Um, I wasn't bad early. Um, I loved maths. I, I very much excelled at maths and English. And uh, I enjoyed later in my schooling, I did uh, accounting and economics. So if I ever... If, if race calling never happened for me, I think uh, a life in economics or maybe even an accountant uh, would have been what I settled with. But uh, I, end, I completed year 12. I finished my VCE, as it was called, in, in Melbourne. And uh, I was – look, if, if I was a racehorse, uh, I was probably a benchmark 90. I was, I was <laughs> okay without being brilliant. Um, and – as I say, I think by the end, the year 11 and 12 uh, application uh, started to wane as uh, thoughts of the racetrack uh, uh, started to to kick in. But I actually really loved school. I enjoyed it. Uh, I loved the camaraderie of school. And I look back now and, and really love the old school that I went to, St. Paul's College uh, in North Altona. Um, I've actually visited since. Uh, in fact, last year I went back which was extraordinarily surreal to see that there were still five or six teachers that uh, that taught me was still there. Mm. Um, and uh, it's an amazing experience to go back to school because everything feels so much smaller than when you were there as a, as a student. Um, but uh, um, I, I actually got approached by a young race caller uh, at Caulfield about 18 months ago who was uh, 16 at the time, and he said to me, uh, I'm going to leave school. And for the first time, uh, it really hit me. I, I, I it was almost like I, um, I felt sorry for him because I, mm. I really valued that education. Um, I think uh, uh, they say education is or knowledge is power. I think with education, uh, um, the more you know, the, the more uh, uh, benefits you're going to get in life and, and uh, the more fulfilled you're going to be. So, you know, I, uh, I'd encourage anybody to, even if you're frustrated with school, just keep going and finish it because, in fact, it's something I'm now 38, Tappy, and uh, 
as I speak to you, I'm contemplating going back uh, to do some uh, uh, some courses at uh, at university. So uh, I'm a big believer in it. Mm. I mean, that is noble intent. How the hell are you going to fit it in? <laughs> well, that's a, a outstanding question. Uh, it's going to have <laughs> to be over uh, quite a period. It's going to be quite drawn out, I think. Um, <laughs> so uh, I can do it part-time. And uh, I know I'm not the only one. Adam Ozanski, who calls uh, races with us in Victoria, also does schooling part-time. So it, it certainly can be done. Um, and uh, it just depends on what I choose to, to study, I suppose. But uh, mm. yeah, it's it's just something that uh, I, I, again, just want to make the um, the best of myself. And I'm a, I'm a curious person I like watching the news and enjoy you know having a look at what's going on around the world uh, you know politically wise and things like that so um, I'd like to I'd like to expand my brain uh, if I can on leaving school you got a little casual job with radio mm-hmm. 3uz yep. as it was then known and you actually assisted some of the race callers who did you work with I worked with them all uh, that were at uh, 3UZ, and uh, at that time it became Sport 927. They had that uh, changeover period. And uh, so Brian Martin was the main Saturday race caller, and Greg Miles called the races for them on Sunday. So that was the era where, and you'd remember this vividly, Tappy, I think uh, Sydney did as well. They had about 50 Sunday meetings a year, Mm. um, and they were all in the metropolitan area. So Sunday racing became huge. And uh, my role predominantly was to work with Greg on a Sunday and set up his uh, gear and and, and answer the phone for him because he had to wrestle his ABC commitments, uh, his Sky Channel commitments, and also uh, uh, Sport 927 slash 3UZ. And that was sort of the, the start down here of having one race caller. Um, the Saturdays had multiple race callers, but the Sundays didn't. And uh, I had my job was just to, to set up the equipment. I'd lug this massive black box. I'd have to get, uh, well, sometimes it was mum would have to drive me to the radio station, pick up the black box, then drive it to Caulfield or Flemington and, and then set it up and then take it back to the radio station for about $48, I think. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but I loved it uh, because, you know, I was sitting there uh, watching a hero of mine call the races and then I'd worked with Brian Martin on the Saturday and Brian Blackmore as well, and, and Brian Markovic. So uh, I, it was really good fun. And uh, I, I'm a big believer if you're watching experts at their job, uh, you just pick up little hints along the way. And uh, that was the most important part of the role. And at the same time, I'd go to the uh, Friday night Geelong Greyhounds and Ronnie Hawks would give me the, uh, well, what I now tell him the hardest races to do. He'd give me the maiden races over 347 metres because dogs would go everywhere and they'd go for about 18 seconds. And uh, when I chip him about it now, he says, well, see, it made you as a race caller. So Mm -hmm. uh, he's got no guilt about it at all. (laughs) Well, it wasn't long after, Matt, when you acquired a little tape recorder (laughs) and you became a regular In the grandstand, you'd find a little quiet spot somewhere in the stand where you could get a little practice in. Mm -hmm. Definitely, and I think that that's the way uh, to do it. Uh, You have to look through the binoculars, and I know a lot of people, some people struggle looking through binoculars, and uh, that's such a key when you're a race caller. So I'd take my binoculars, and uh, eventually uh, I got my dad to knock up a little little swivel stand uh, that he, he just designed off a photo, and uh, I'd take that everywhere with me and uh, and there'd be spare broadcast boxes uh, at the trots at, at Mooney Valley and 
Um, I went everywhere. Uh, I also enjoyed going to the provincials on a Saturday because they were horses I didn't know, and I found it a real challenge to to call them. And it was literally just time at the crease. It was it was literally like a golfer, a learning golfer at the driving range, just hitting balls over and over again. What I did, I just kept calling races over and over again. And sometimes there'd be three or four races that I was moderately happy with, and then the other five, I'd you know just forget about them. And then I'd rock up the next week and do it all over again. And uh, it was just peppering away at, uh, at learning the, the craft and, uh, and at the same time listening to all of the race callers that were from the past and also the present and just taking little hints and, uh, about rhythm and voice. And um, eventually it is like an art form. It is like a musician that takes three or four samples from artists that they idolise or that they follow and then there's a bit of yourself in there as well, and and that's what I find uh, is the art form of it. And uh, I it would have been over three or four years. Uh, I'm, I've got an absolute stack of cassette tapes here, Tappy. They're that old-fashioned now, I suppose. But <laughs> oh, there'd be a few Grand Nationals in there, and there'd be a Shaker Makers into Dominion, and uh, yeah, and I called it to the grand total of myself. But uh, they're still there in the cupboard somewhere. Well, Matt, I'm going to spool fast forward now. You've always had this fascination with new places and new faces. You said mm-hmm. earlier that you're a curious person. <laughs> You've called racing at many venues, sometimes live to air, sometimes a delayed, a pre-recorded broadcast, which was used later. Now, tell me if this list is accurate. Ireland, firstly. What did you do in Ireland? I was a guest uh, at the Curra. Um, this was quite a long time ago now. I would have been uh, early 20s. And uh, I was over for one of my uh, trips to the, the Grand National, which we'll, we'll touch on in a moment. But uh, I was over uh, in Ireland. And I suppose if you're in that part of the world, you can't uh, avoid a trip to the Curra, the, the famous race course in Ireland, in Dublin. So uh, I met Des Scarhill, who was the race caller at the time. And uh, he's a very uh, casual man. He... Uh, he just uh, loved the fact that he could give a race away so he could have a race off. And uh, he said, mm. uh, would you like to call a race, Sonny? And uh, uh, it was great fun. It was a 1,600-metre race, and uh, I got a photo of myself in the broadcast box at the Curragh, which sits uh, actually in my bedroom uh, as we speak. So um, mm. it was a, a day that I cherished. You got to call an historic cross-country steeplechase in the Czech Republic, a race yes. which may be even tougher that the than the English Grand National. Now, Matt, the race I think is called. Correct me if I'm wrong. The Velka Padubica. Yep, you're very close. Very, very close. Yeah, the Velka Padubica. It's a race that uh, was designed on the English Grand National. In fact, there's a lot of history about the uh, Velka attached to the Grand National because they were virtually similar races back 150-odd years ago. Uh, they raced through ploughed paddocks and through forests and over wooden fences and brick walls. And then as uh, Aintree developed and became more professional, uh, the race the, of the Grand National that we know now uh, changed. And the Czech Republic race didn't. Uh, it remained the way it is. And uh, it really is a, f- a phenomenal race. The English like to go and raid it with their cross-country horses. Uh, and they'll have horses from Slovakia and, uh, and Italy um, and some from Ireland. But it, it is a cross-country race uh, all within the confines of the Pardubica race course, which is a, a, a town about an hour out of Prague. 
and um, uh, it's a great experience. Uh, and I was over there on a holiday and uh, organised to commentate the race. Uh, the uh, local television company set up a little box for us. The club uh, paid for it. And uh, it was back in the day, uh, this is 2006, where we weren't really getting international racing on Sky Channel at all, um, bar for maybe the odd race from Royal Ascot or, or a Japan Cup, etc. So I took the tape back and we, we played it uh, quite a lot on, on Sky Channel and uh, got a really interesting reception because uh, people had never seen anything like it before. And Obviously, with the invent of YouTube and uh, and online streaming, uh, uh, people can watch the race live uh, nowadays. But uh, I, it was something I wanted to do and have a crack at, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, it was won by a horse uh, called Decent Fellow, and uh, uh, I can remember there was a horse. I couldn't believe it. There were so many Czech Republic names, and then the horse that ran last was called Harry the Beaver. So uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> now. Mauritius, uh, yes. you did a guest call. Mm-hmm. Now, your French experience interests me greatly. You called from a studio in Paris. You were nowhere near the racetrack. Yeah, so this is where France is leading the way in this department, uh, Taffy, and you know, I can certainly see in 10 years' time, uh, as I mentioned earlier, where women's football is going to be through the roof. I think that uh, – I think this is going to be where race calling's heading. Uh, the French call from a studio. Uh, their big meetings are called, and, th- and this is the French language, I must say. Mm. Um, they call, uh, the course broadcasters call from a studio in, in Paris, and so do the English that we hear on a nightly basis, a basis now, like John Hunt and Arthur Cooper, mm. uh, Patrick Swainson, etc. So um, it's, it's got to a stage where uh, the English callers uh, – don't do anything from the race course in, in France, bar for Arc Day. So I went in and, and did a couple of days there, and uh, it was enjoyable but quite surreal uh, to be calling races at Lyon and, and Vincennes Harness Racing. And, you know, you look out the window of your little position and you're looking into a, a, a factory, you know, in a, out a suburb of Paris. It, it is quite bizarre. Mm. I'm extremely envious of the fact that you got to call the famous Elite Lop Trot at Salvala Raceway in Sweden uh, for Sky Channel, for Sky Racing, and uh, that is an event I would love uh, to have covered at some stage during my career. Must be Well, it's a hell of a day, isn't it? They come from everywhere. Well, it really is their Melbourne Cup, isn't it? Uh, it is huge, the Elite Lop, and it was virtually inspired by your television program, uh, Tappy, in the gig because uh, I remember – um, we showed uh, the final of the Elite Lop on Sky Channel and, and the race commentator from Sweden uh, was sort of speaking in broken English and didn't really know how to call the race and was just spitting a few numbers out and completely called the wrong horse winning. Um, and uh, the producer of In the Gig at the time, uh, you'd quite remember by the name of Dragon Drukovic, said mm. to me, um, why don't you just go into the voiceover booth and, and call the race and we'll compare how the Australians would do it compared to how they do it in Sweden. Mm. And uh, in the end, um, I thought, gee, it wouldn't be a bad race to call. Uh, and uh, I, I became quite fascinated in it and uh, I paid my way. I, I decided to go on a, a little working holiday. I paid my trip to Sweden and uh, the deal was for uh, for Sky Racing to organise it through their uh, international connections to uh, to call the race for Sky Channel Live. And uh, so 
The only task that made it a bit more difficult, Tappy, is being uh, Sky Channel, we covered the 13 races on the program. So there were plenty of, in fact, every horse, I didn't know them. <laughs> yeah. So it was quite interesting. But what I really took out of it was it, it was like the Olympics of trotting. I had Norwegians and French callers around me, uh, a couple of Swedish commentators. I'm pretty sure there was a commentator from Germany and, and Finland as well. So, you know, it really was that part of the world, uh, a very big event and, and very big on their free-to-air television in sweden as well and uh, yeah it was a, it was a, a great experience matt i'm going to jump ahead a bit here because we've got a lot of ground to cover mm. uh, you called the great horse kitterson black winning a japan cup you call that unique horse event in a little town called siena in italy where the race actually takes place around the town square it's become a a, a widely recognized a social event and a great tourist attraction. You've called races in Singapore and Malaysia and Dubai where you call two Dubai World Cups for Radio Dubai, including the freakish win by California Chrome in 2016 when he never got on the track and just bolted in. You covered a German derby for Dubai Television in 2018, but easily the best known of your overseas assignments is the famous Grand National at Aintree in England. And we're going to save that up for segment two of our podcast with Matthew Hill, and we'll be back very shortly with part two of uh, a very interesting, a very unique interview with a young man who has just concluded his third Melbourne Spring Racing Carnival. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress.